Well, good evening. If you are uh, just joining us uh, over the last uh, few months, uh, we are in the middle of a series on eschatology, uh, the study of the last things. We've been looking at several different uh, passages that speak to some aspect of uh, personal or, or general cosmic uh, eschatology. Uh, if if it feels like it, it's a little disjointed to you, uh, you're not alone. I felt that as well. We've had the officer installation. We have missions festival. We've had Sunday night fellowships. And so this series has felt a little bit uh, you know, jerky, hit and miss. Um, uh, but we've been looking at passages that the church, uh, down through the centuries, as it's wrestled with these questions about what the Bible teaches about the last things, uh, these texts, these topics uh, have, have been very important in that conversation. They've also been very controversial. Uh, even amongst our own pastoral staff, it's likely that we would not uh, all preach these texts in the exact same way. We wouldn't necessarily interpret them in the exact same way. Uh, but however we preach them, uh, our, our aim would be the same. We would want to inform your mind with God's truth uh, and we would want, uh, by the Spirit, to inflame your affections, to love the Lord, to trust the Lord, uh, as well as to move your will uh, toward obedience to God's commands. And so as we look at a difficult passage uh, this evening, my prayer is that we wouldn't miss the forest for the trees, right? That we wouldn't uh, fail uh, to, to see the Lord's truth transform us uh, into a people who are waiting more and more eagerly, more and more faithfully, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, now, I will uh, admit this is a, a bit of a longer sermon. One of the uh, uh, joys of being a, a pastor at a multi-staff church is that I don't have to only hear myself preach, right? There's lots of different preachers. You don't have to only hear me preach. Uh, and so my first, uh, what, 2007 to two, or 2003 to 2014, 11 years, I was the only pastor morning and evening. And so it was such a joy to come here. The, the problem with a multi-staff church is you've got to plan out the preaching calendar, right? Like a year in advance to, so that people can plan and can know what they're going to do and what they're going to preach and when they're going to preach. Uh, well, so a text like this in my previous churches, I would have been like, yeah, this is two sermons, right? But I can't do that here, right? So you get two sermons in one, essentially, right? Tonight, that's what you're here for. So, um, so let's turn in our Bibles to, uh, to Luke uh, chapter 21, and we're going to read uh, from verse 5 down through verse 36. So hear God's word. Now, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, you have probably seen those images that have a caption underneath that say, is this an old lady or a young lady? Is this a rabbit or a duck? Is this a fish or a mermaid or a donkey or a seal? Right, have you seen those pictures before? And of course, the answer is, it's both. Right? It's both. It depends on how you look at it, what angle you're looking at it from, what part of the picture you desire to focus upon. Well, I think about those images whenever I read the Olivet Discourse, which is found here in Luke chapter 21, as well as Matthew 24 and Mark 13. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Matthew tells us Jesus taught his disciples these things in the, on the Mount of Olives. One commentator has written that this passage is the subject of more scholarly debate than perhaps any other passage in the Gospels. And the question, the debate, typically revolves around whether this passage is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or to Jesus' second coming, or to both. Right? Now, I've selected Luke's gospel for us to preach through and to study together, uh, in part because of that interpretive principle that the less clear passages of Scripture ought to be interpreted in light of the more clear passages. And it's my contention that Luke's gospel, uh, even more clearly than, than Matthew or Mark, uh, helps us to see that Jesus here is actually talking about both Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD uh, and Jesus's return in glory. Uh, now, when I, I mentioned those two options or three options, Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD, Jesus' second coming, uh, or both, uh, perhaps you're wondering, why does this question uh, even arise when we read this, this passage? 
Well, there are at least three reasons why this is an important question for us to grapple with, to wrestle with, why the the Bible students, if you've ever read this passage before, you probably have wrestled with that. You've wondered. Uh, And the first, of course, is the occasion of the discourse. You see it there in verse 5. Remember, since Luke 19, we've been in Jesus' last week of his life. And in verse 5, Luke tells us that one day some people, Matthew and Mark tell us it was his disciples, uh, were speaking about how beautiful uh, the the Jewish temple uh, looked. Look at these huge stones. Look at all these beautiful decorations. And they were majestic, and they were enormous stones, and, and they were beautiful, and there were all these amazing gold and silver and, and, and all sorts of fancy objects that had been given to the temple. But Jesus, in verse 6, responds, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this was a shocking claim. And, of course, the disciples wanted to know more. Teacher, verse 7, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And so you can see from the very occasion of this discourse that the destruction of Jerusalem is what is in view. The destruction of the temple, an event that we know from history, recorded history, actually took place in the year 70 AD. That's at the very center of this discourse. So that's one reason why this question arises. The second reason is found in verse 32. In verse 32, at the end of the discourse, Jesus declares that this generation will not pass away until all things, all these things, have taken place. So if you're studying this text, you have to wrestle with this question, okay, what does Jesus mean when he says this generation? To whom is he referring? And what does he mean by all things in relation to what we've read in the text? Uh, On the surface, it appears that Jesus is speaking of the generation to whom he's talking, right? His disciples, those who are alive when he's speaking. And yet, if that's the case, what do we do with verses 25 to 27 when it speaks of the the coming of Jesus? Is that referring to his second coming? So does that mean that he already came? So do you you see the tension? Do you see the struggle that you you have to confront? Is this destruction of Jerusalem? Is this the second coming of Jesus? Is this both? And then, of course, the the, the third and, and final reason we might give of why this question arises is because of that little phrase in verse 27. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's actually a quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And when you go back and you read Daniel 7, it seems pretty clear that the direction of the coming is not from heaven to earth, but it's actually from earth to heaven. It's the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, being presented before him, that he might receive a kingdom that he might be enthroned and receive eternal dominion and glory and power so that all peoples and nations and men and women and boys and girls of every language might serve him. And so some have argued very persuasively that in verse 27, what you have is is not a reference to Jesus' return at the end of time, but rather a reference to his enthronement and glory over all the nations, which occurred at the ascension, but which was most clearly demonstrated and manifested in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. When the old economy, the old covenant era, the sacrificial system was done away with for good because Jesus had come. Jesus, the great high priest who was greater than the temple, who was the final sacrifice. Jesus had come and had been raised up as the seed of David 
sitting on David's throne. And this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is that, that symbol, that, that sign, that final, you know, the, the last nail in the coffin of the old covenant era. Now all know that those who had rejected Jesus have been judged. The kingdom has been taken away from the Jews and given to those who will bear the fruit of it, as Jesus says in another parable. And so with those three things in mind, I hope you can see that, that this is a hard text, right? This is a tough passage uh, for uh, the, the interpreter, for the student of the scripture. Uh, and it's even open to, to several different, I would argue, orthodox interpretations. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, as I've studied this week and over the years, I, I think that Luke's account helps us to see that it is best to take Jesus's Olivet Discourse as referring to both the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and to his return at the end of time. And so I want us to look tonight at how he does that. But remember, uh, in all of these sermons, remember that Jesus and the apostles are not merely interested in giving us eschatological trivia, right, for the curious. Rather, Jesus desires to that these eschatological, these end-time realities would change the way that we live. Right, that it would prepare us to live differently as the last day draws near. And so I want you to see how Jesus encourages us with his words to that end. So let's dig in. First, Jesus in this passage, in verses 8 through 11, teaches his disciples and us that we should not freak out about non-signs. Okay, do not freak out, Jesus is saying, about non-signs. Notice that he doesn't actually answer the disciples' question right away, does he? In fact, he doesn't answer their question directly until verse 20. Because first, Jesus realizes he needs to correct a misunderstanding that is behind their question. If you were to flip your Bibles back to chapter 19, verse 11, uh, you would see uh, that uh, as Jesus neared Jerusalem, he proceeded to tell a parable, actually the parable of the talents, and he did this because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so Jesus tells the parable of the talents to say, no, 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 no. I'm coming to Jerusalem, right? But it's not to claim my messianic throne. It's not to overthrow the Romans. It's not to usher in my total and final reign of, of peace and righteousness. There's actually going to be a delay you remember the parable of the talents where he's going to entrust these talents and he's the, 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 the king, he's going to receive a king. He's going to come back after a long time. Right? And so there in, Matthew, in Luke 19, but also here, it seems that the people who heard Jesus tell that parable, if they were the same, weren't listening very closely right? because they're still operating out of the same mindset. They're still assuming that this event that Jesus has spoken of, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, coincides with the end of the age. And if you go read Matthew 24, the, the way that Matthew records their question, it's even clearer that they are thinking that, hey, the destruction of the temple, this is big. This must mean, right, the end of this age, the end of time, the end of, of this world as we know it. The, the, the messianic kingdom is going to come in. There's going to be the new temple of which the Old Testament spoke of. Uh, there's going to be the messianic glory. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's going to be a, a delay. And during that delay, here's the deal. 
there are going to be things that appear to you to be signs, but they're not signs. They're not signs of the end. Don't be led astray. Watch, he says. See, be on guard that you are not led astray. These things are not signs, whether of the temple's destruction or of the end of this age. Sometimes, he says, people are going to falsely claim to be me. Uh, sometimes, perhaps, there's, you're going to hear of wars. You're going to hear of these unsettled state of affairs, of tumults and disturbances. You're going to hear of nations rising up against nations and, and kingdoms against kingdoms. You're going to hear of earthquakes and famines and, and plagues and unusual things in the heavens that are, that are scary, like comets and phenomena that, that, that perhaps you think, whoa, where, what is going on out there? Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. These things must first take place, but the end will not be immediately, will not be at once. Neither the end of the temple nor the end of the age. Jesus is telling his disciples to have their guard up, to have a shield up against seeing the end of time under every natural disaster or every pandemic or every war. Rather, these are just the normal course of life in this present age. It would be like a doctor saying to a pregnant mom, honey, don't get excited. Right? These are just Braxton Hicks contractions. Like You're not about to have a baby. Right? These are just the beginning of birth pangs, as Matthew records it in chapter 24. And these are under the sovereign control of God. These things must take place. So do not freak out. Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Do not be misled. That's what Jesus is saying to these disciples in this time period, right before he was to be crucified. And yet how amazing is it that even to this day, some 2,000 years later, Christians still, still go along with this end time craziness and madness, or they become truly frightened by claims that the end is at hand. It's right around the corner because look, right, Russia's invaded Ukraine. COVID's upon us. Right? Donald Trump was elected. Joe Biden was elected. There's polarization. There's racial polarization and economic polarization. This is end times. And Jesus would say, wait, did you hear what I said in Matthew 24, Luke 21? Don't be terrified. Don't be dismayed. Be on guard. These, are not, these were not signs of Jerusalem's destruction, and they're not signs of the end of the age. These are the normal things that happen. In this fallen world, Jesus is saying, so please do not say, and when you hear someone say, well, you heard what I, you hear what I read, heard on the news or read in the news? Like, you know, Russia's coming down into Israel. Like, that has nothing to do, Jesus is saying, with the end of time. These are not signs, so do not freak out. That's the first point. The second point we see in verses 12 through 19, where Jesus tells his disciples to prepare for persecution. Prepare for persecution. You see, not only were Jesus' disciples uh, not about to see their final redemption with the destruction of Jerusalem, but verse 12 says, on the contrary, they were about to see a time of great persecution for them, for the sake of Jesus' name. And notice he says, even before these things happen, verse 12, before all this, they're going to lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the, the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, to the prisons. You'll be brought before kings, Roman emperors, and governors for my name's sake. And if you've ever read the book of Acts, you know that this is exactly what happened. In the, the decades leading up to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD, the early church went through tremendous persecution, both at the hand of the Jews as well as 
the Gentiles, the Romans. Everyone would hate them, Jesus says here, even their own family members. What is Jesus doing here? He is preparing them for persecution. He is preparing them to experience and to think how encouraging it would have been to them. As they suffered, as they were persecuted, as they were martyred, to realize that this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. This should not surprise us. They were experiencing the very things that Jesus himself had had prophesied. But Jesus is also wanting them to know that as they go through that time of persecution, far from indicating that he has abandoned them, rather, he is telling them ahead of time that he is going to be particularly near to them. And how does he manifest that in these words? Well, Well, first notice that in their suffering, Jesus is saying that he had given them a gift, the gift of a platform for their witness. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. They were to declare the gospel in those opportunities, the truth about Jesus and his kingdom. But but secondly, Jesus' goodness is shown to them in that verse 14 and 15 tell us Jesus will provide the words that they need to say on those occasions. They don't need to prepare their speeches and and have them in their pocket and write them out and, and have them there on the teleprompter. No, They are to trust that Jesus will give them the words to say in that moment. Wise words. Go read Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and see the the very fulfillment of these words. As as an aside, uh, verses 14 and 15 are not instructions for preachers about how to prepare their sermons each week. Right, Carl? Uh, We can't just get up and say, Holy Spirit, please give me the words to say in front of these folks. No. Uh, This was a particular special occasion right? Where before the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, God, the Son, through God, the Holy Spirit, would give the words and would give wisdom, right? So that, as Jesus says, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or to contradict you. And so we see Jesus giving the gift of a platform, providing the words to say, and finally preserving them, preserving them. Even though none of their adversaries would be able to withstand or contradict their testimony, Jesus says, but some of you will be put to death. But even when you're put to death, not a hair from your head would perish. You'll be irrefutable and you'll be indestructible. Now you go, wait a minute, Jesus. You've just said that I'm going to die, but not a hair from my head is going to perish? How do these two things go together? Well, Jesus is not contradicting himself over the, the matter of two verses. Rather, he's reiterating what he had already spoke to them back in chapter 12, When he says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body only and after that have nothing else they can do, right? He's saying, look, even if you die physically, you're not going to die spiritually. And on the last day, you're going to be raised up to a new physical existence. And by your endurance, there in verse 19, you will gain your lives as you witness for Christ, as you hope in the presence of Jesus to provide you with the words to speak in these opportunities to preserve you, you will enter into life eternal. Now, I hope you can hear that this passage has primary uh, reference and application to the church before 70 AD, Uh, and yet its principles do apply throughout church history until the very end, until Jesus does return. When the church suffers today, we do not need to be afraid. That we can trust in the goodness of God, that he will give us opportunities. He will give us the words to speak. Uh, He will preserve us to the end. Even if the world refuses to hear our testimony, we have the great confidence uh, that we have a hope. We have a physical hope, uh, the hope of resurrection, 
Even if we die, yet we live. And so we should never be surprised, Jesus is saying, when persecution comes. Even in this old Bible belt, right? It used to be the Bible belt. Maybe it still is in some places. Right? But this is a post-Christian era in which we live. The church will face persecution. Christians will suffer Right, the form of Christendom that we've enjoyed over the course of centuries in America, it is not the norm, Jesus is saying. And so when we face opposition, when we are even martyred perhaps, Jesus is saying, this is the normal situation for the church. Do not be surprised. Be prepared. Be ready. Third, Jesus tells us in this discourse uh, that we should be assured, right? be assured that God's judgment is coming, verses 20 to 24. Finally, Jesus answers their question. He doesn't tell them that it will be in 70 AD, but he does tell them the sign that will happen, the sign that will occur, that they will know that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And what is that sign, verse 20? It is when they see Jerusalem surrounded, being surrounded by armies. Now here, Luke, who's writing for a primarily Gentile audience, essentially translates the phrase from Daniel that that is used in Mark and Matthew, that phrase, the abomination of desolations. Uh, You remember that in Daniel, as Christian referred to us, uh, when he preached Daniel chapter 9, that had been a prophetic reference to the, the desecration of the temple by the Syrian king Antiochus in 168 B.C., Uh, Jesus uh, was saying to his disciples that that Danielic uh, abomination that that, that Daniel was prophesying of that had already happened in the history of of Israel, that was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen by Rome to Jerusalem in 70 AD. And here, uh, Luke says exactly what Jesus was referring to. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you are to be assured that its time of destruction has drawn near. It's going to be a time of great distress upon the land of Judah. I agree with those commentators who would say that in verse 23, the word that's translated earth is better translated land. Right? Why would, if, if great distress is upon the earth at this place, why would he even mind telling, or why would he worry about telling them to flee? Rather, as we see from the end of verse 23, wrath against this people, the great distress is upon the land of Israel. Right? It, it, wrath of God is about to fall upon the people of Israel. They will fall by the edge of the sword, verse 24 says. They'll be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And this is exactly what happened. You can go back and read it in various sources. Uh, but in, in 66, the Jews rebelled against the Romans. Uh, in 67, the Roman commander Vespasian came and, and started to attack and, and conquer the land of Israel. Nero dies in 68 A.D., Uh, Vespasian becomes the emperor. His son Titus comes into uh, Jerusalem, the vicinity of Jerusalem. Uh, He lays siege to the city for five months in the year 70. And and by August, uh, the city is is defeated. He breaks in. He desecrates the temple. He destroys the temple. Uh, Jerusalem and Israel as a nation really is no more. Certainly the, uh, the, the sacrificial system, the, uh, the, the old economy uh, of, of Israel as God's covenant people, it is gone. It is taken away from them. Uh, and yet we know from historical records that the Christians who lived around Jerusalem in that day, uh, they heeded Jesus' instructions. When they saw the signal that Jesus gave, sort of like a baseball player seeing the, you know, the steel sign from his coach, when he saw the signal, these Christians 
they fled. They didn't go back into the city, which was the normal sort of course of events. When you saw, you know, armies coming, you would get out of the country, you would go into the city where there was defenses, and they heard Jesus, and they said, wait, Jesus said the opposite. Jesus said, don't go back in the city. Flee to the mountains. We know that eventually they made it to a, a city across the Jordan River called Pella, where they, they sort of, you know, camped out and, and, and established a community there uh, in, in fulfillment of Jesus' words, obeying Jesus' words. Jesus is protecting his people ahead of time because he knew, he was telling them, here's how horrible the wrath of the Romans is going to be against the covenant people. But here's the thing. It's not just the wrath of the Romans. It's the wrath of God. Be assured that God's judgment is coming, Jesus is saying. Uh, Jerusalem's destruction was, as you see there in verse 22, the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written the Jews were finally about to receive God's judgment for their unfaithfulness, their willful apostasy against God. Jesus tells us in Luke 19 that, that Rome destroyed Jerusalem because the, the Jews did not know the time of their visitation. They did not accept that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. They rejected him. That, that phrase, the, the days of vengeance, is a phrase that we find in Isaiah 10 and Hosea 9. Jesus is saying that everything the Old Testament predicted to fall upon the Jews because of their rebellion. It will happen. It will happen when this temple is destroyed. Luke 20 talks about the wicked tenants being destroyed and their vineyard given to another people. It was now the time of the Gentiles. It was the time of the Gentiles, a reference not only to the fact that, that God is using the Gentiles to destroy and punish the Jews, but that the gospel is now going forth to all the nations. The, the gospel is going forth to all the Gentiles. He's warning his people to flee Jerusalem so that they will be ready to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And why must that gospel go forth? Because God's judgment will fall upon the Gentiles as well, unless they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns in the last day, he will judge the world. Which brings us to verses 25 through 33. Jesus has said, don't freak out over non-signs. Be prepared for persecution. Be assured that God's judgment is coming. And now he says, be confident that your redemption is drawing near. In verse 25, I believe that Jesus is shifting from 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. And now he's speaking of the second coming at the end of time. And he, Luke includes several uh, unique phrases that, that lead me to this conclusion. And you see them there in verses 28 and 31. When the disciples see the things, these things begin to take place, Jesus says, know that your redemption is drawing near and the kingdom of God is drawing near. Jerusalem's destruction was not the drawing near of final redemption. That is the redemption of the body of what Paul speaks of in, in Romans 8. It was not the drawing near of the kingdom of God. If you were to turn and flip to chapter 22, Jesus would say, look, I'm not going to eat or, or, or drink, uh, I'm not going to drink wine until I come in my kingdom. He's referring to the end of time, his second coming. And, and likewise, I believe here as well, Jesus is speaking of a day, the last day, in which, as verse 35 puts it, a day that will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. The day when his enthronement and his exaltation as the king over all the nations will fully and finally be revealed for all to see, and he will defeat all of his enemies. And in the days leading up to that day, Jesus tells us here, 
that there will be signs and sun and moon and stars on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding for what is coming on the world, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, these signs are of a different character of the signs that we saw earlier because they don't just occur in various places, as verse 11 says, but over the whole world, the whole inhabited earth. And rather than being things in which Jesus would say, the end is not yet, these are world-shaking signs. Now, it isn't clear whether the things that Jesus is speaking of are to be interpreted literally or figuratively. This language of sun and moon and stars actually in the Old Testament uh, was a figurative language referring to sort of political upheavals and, and nations taking over other nations. Uh, but as we see in Second Peter, there's also going to be physical upheaval. There's going to be cosmic uh, you know, destruction. And so it's possible that that is what Jesus is speaking of here as well. Either way, don't miss the point. The point is that Jesus' people don't respond the way the world responds. The world responds with perplexity and with fainting and fear and foreboding. But we, Jesus says, verse 28, are to straighten up and raise our heads because our redemption is drawing near when we see these things start to happen, when we see uh, these, the signs and sun and moon and stars, when we see distress of nations and perplexity, Jesus is saying, have confidence, have trust, right? Know that whatever is happening, your kingdom, your king is coming. The kingdom of God is drawing near. Full redemption is on the way. Jesus gives us this beautiful parable here of the fig trees and all the trees. And it's sort of like what we see even right now, right? We look out and we see, you know, the, the leaves budding, right? We see the, the, the brilliant greens beginning to, to come out on the trees. And you know that spring is upon us and the summer is almost at hand, right? School is almost over. Eight more weeks left, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. When you see these things, you know that the end draws near. So you can respond with trust. You can respond with assurance. You can have confidence. You can have a joyful anticipation. You can stand tall with your face uplifted, as Jesus puts it, looking forward to that last day. Because you know that if you are trusting in Jesus, it's not going to be a day of judgment, but a day of salvation. So then what do we make of verse 32? Uh, if this is a reference to the second coming, to whom is Jesus referring there in verse 32? Some would say only to the people who are alive in his own day and that he's just referring to the verses before verse 25. Uh, but I think a better interpretation is that, that this phrase, this generation, is, is not so much referring to a, a time as, as it is a type of people. In the Gospel of Luke, whenever that phrase, this generation, occurs, it's used to refer to this wicked generation. And so Jesus is, is speaking of a, of a Christ-rejecting people who are going to continue until the very end. So far from things getting better and better and better, Jesus is saying, the wicked will be on earth disobeying me, afflicting God's people until the day I return. And when I return, as we've already seen, he will bring judgment upon them. Our salvation will be judgment for those who have rejected him. And so for us, the redemption draws near, the kingdom of God draws near, but that's a, a kingdom and a redemption that will save us and will defeat all of his and our enemies. And we know this is true, Jesus says, because as heaven and earth, though it will pass away, verse 33, his words will never pass away. So what's the final application that Jesus makes here? In light of everything we've seen, verses 34 to 36, watch and 
pray. Watch and pray. Again, this chapter is not here to tickle our eschatological curiosities, but it's to call us to a right eschatological mindset and lifestyle. And Jesus closes with this commandment, watch yourselves, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. And it's so interesting here. Jesus is giving to us two different categories, two different ways that we can fall asleep, as it were, that we can lose our guard and and, and drop our guard. On the one hand is this way of dissipation and debauchery, right? Indulging in lawless pleasure. But on the other hand is being consumed with the cares of this life, a, a fretful anxiety with all the things that are going on in your life. Both are worldliness. Don't, don't miss that. Right? I, I feel like, you know, with spring, and you probably had the same experience, it's spring cleaning, and the yard needs so much attention, and, you know, there's all these things you want to do in your yard. In your house, it's finally, you know, you can get around to doing things. It's, it's warm outside, and there are bills to be paid, and there's things that are breaking, and you're trying to fix them, and it can be so easy to be consumed with the cares of this life, Jesus is saying. But if you do that, If you do that, you know, it's not just those who are sort of out partying, right, and getting drunk and getting high. No, Jesus is saying you're just as worldly if if you're so consumed with ordinary things like paying bills and maintaining your yards and your vehicles and your houses. Both will lead you to a point of spiritual neglect and drowsiness. And so we must be on our guard, whether it's overt or whether it's hidden worldliness, whether it's worldliness that everyone can see or worldliness that only God can see, both can lead us to the point where the day of Christ becomes something that would come upon us suddenly like a trap, Jesus says. We must stay awake at all times. And how do we do that? Verse 36 tells us by praying that we'll have strength to escape all the things that will take place and strength to stand before the Son of God. Now, again, escape all the things that will take place doesn't mean that we're going to be raptured and snatched away, right, so that we don't have to experience suffering or temptation. But just like we saw in verse 18, Jesus is saying that even if you do go through suffering and temptation, you will have strength to endure it to the end, to make it through, to escape in a spiritual sense, so that when you stand before Jesus, which everyone will, you will remain standing. You'll be found faithful by him. You will be one who can stand with joy and confidence before the king, serving him with all of your heart. And so this is Jesus' word to us. Don't freak out over non-signs. Prepare for persecution. Be assured that God's judgment is coming. Be confident that your redemption is drawing near. Watch and pray. It was his word to the disciples in the first century. It's his word to us even this day as we still await the coming of Jesus Christ. Let me close with reading from Hebrews chapter 10 that I believe summarizes so beautifully the the message of Jesus here. He's speaking to the first century church and he says this, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. 
But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. May God be pleased to grant us grace to watch and pray, to be ready for the Lord Jesus Christ and his soon return, knowing that he who came in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD will come in judgment on all who are opposed to him, but all who are trusting in him will find full redemption, a kingdom of grace and glory forever and ever. And so we can stand up with our backs straightened, our heads raised with confidence that Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for this passage and all of its complexity and all of its richness. Lord, we thank you for the message of hope and confidence and assurance. Lord, would you give us grace that we might not only understand your word better, but that we might live in accord with it. Lord, particularly, would you help us to, to keep watchful, to keep prayerful, Lord, to not allow our hearts to give in to debauchery and drunkenness and dissension and, and d- d- dissipation, but also, Lord, to guard our hearts against worldliness and, and the cares of this world. Lord, that we would, would be those who could focus on you, focus on your coming, live in the future, as it were, and knowing that you will come one day. Help us to be ready, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.